The wormwood is here to see you, sir, as you requested. Send him in. Uncle. Wormwood, what am I to do with you? What have I done now? When I told you not to fill your letters with rubbish about the war, I meant, of course, that I did not want to hear your rather infantile rhapsodies about the death of men and the destruction of cities. Oh. However, I want full reports about the manner in which the war concerns the spiritual state of your patient. Why are you so singularly obtuse on this issue? Obtuse? This latest report, for example, you tell me with glee that there is reason to expect heavy air raids on the town where the creature lives. Yes. I have complained to you about this already. Your readiness to forget the main point in your enjoyment of human suffering. Do you not know that bombs kill men? Um, well, yes, I've got that. Then do you not realize that the patient's death at this moment is precisely what we want to avoid? Do we? Yes. Look at your situation. He has escaped the worldly friends with whom you tried to entangle him, am I right? Yes. He has fallen in love with a very Christian woman and is temporarily immune from your attacks on his chastity, correct? Yes. And am I wrong to conclude that your various methods of corrupting his spiritual life have thus far been unsuccessful? Yes. I, I mean, no, you're not wrong. And though he has not been called to military service, he is now volunteering as the local air raid warden, serving his neighbors more charitably than ever before, and garnering the girl's respect all the more for it. Right. And to his utter surprise, he is enjoying his efforts more than he ever suspected and daily increasing his conscious dependency on the enemy. Um, well, yes. So, at the present moment, as the full impact of the war draws nearer and his worldly hopes take a proportionately lower place in his mind, he will almost certainly be lost to us if he is killed tonight. Oh. I sometimes wonder if you young fiends are not kept out on temptation duty too long at a time. The humans, of course, are meant to regard death as the prime evil and survival as the greatest good, but that is because we have taught them to do so. Do not let us be infected by our own propaganda. Your chief aim, as strange as it may seem, is the very same thing for which the patient's lover and his mother are praying, namely, his bodily safety. You should be guarding him, like the apple of your eye. If he dies now, you lose him. If he survives the war, there is always hope. The enemy has guarded him from you through the very first wave of temptations, but... If he can be kept alive, you have time itself as your ally. Think it through, Wormwood. The long, dull, monotonous years of middle-aged prosperity or middle-aged adversity are excellent campaigning weather. Monotonous, yes. You see? It is so hard for these creatures to persevere. The routine of adversity, the gradual decay of youthful loves and youthful hopes, 
the quiet despair, hardly felt as pain, of ever overcoming the chronic temptations with which we have again and again defeated them, the drabness which we create in their lives and the inarticulate resentment with which we teach them to respond to it. All this provides admirable opportunities of wearing out a soul by attrition. Uh, of course, uh, attrition. And if, on the other hand, the middle years prove prosperous, our position is even stronger. Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it, while really it is finding its place in him. His increasing reputation, his widening circle of acquaintances, his sense of importance, the growing pressure of absorbing and agreeable work build up in him a sense of being really at home in Earth, which is just what we want. Is that why the young are generally less unwilling to die than the middle-aged and the old? Yes. The truth is that the enemy, having oddly destined these mere animals to life in his own eternal world, has guarded them pretty effectively from the danger of feeling at home anywhere else. That is why we must often wish long life to our patients. Eighty years is not a day too much for the difficult task of unraveling their souls from heaven and building up a firm attachment to Earth. While they are young, we find them always shooting off at a tangent. Even if we contrive to keep them ignorant of explicit religion, the incalculable winds of fantasy and music and beauty, the mere face of a girl or the song of a bird or, or the sight of a horizon are always blowing our whole structure away. So inveterate is their appetite for heaven that our best method of attaching them to Earth at this stage is to make them believe that Earth can be turned into heaven at some future date by politics or science or psychology or whatnot. Real worldliness is a work of time. Assisted, of course, by pride. For we teach them to describe the creeping death as good sense, or maturity, or experience. Right. Well, um, thank you, Uncle. Experience, in the peculiar sense we teach them to give it, is, by the by, a most useful word. A great human philosopher nearly let our secret out when he said that, where virtue is concerned, experience is the mother of illusion. But thanks to a change in thinking, and also, of course, due to the historical point of view, we have largely rendered his words innocuous. I've got it, Uncle. Experience, death, time. Um, all very important. You may gauge the value of time by the fact that the enemy allows us so little of it. What are we given to do our work? A paltry 60 or 70 human years? Well, there is our opportunity. The smaller the amount of time, the better we must use it. Right, sir. Right. Hear me well, Wormwood. Yes. Whatever you do, keep your patient as safe as you possibly can. Oh, I will, sir. I will. You, you can count on me.